Hello again, everyone. Thanks for coming back. Part six today, the exciting conclusion of our little overview of the Jewish people who found refuge in China, fleeing first from the Russian Tsar at the dawn of the 20th century and again from Hitler and the Nazis in the 1930s and 40s. We saw how they first went to the city of Harbin, late 1800s, early 1900s, and also to the port city of Tianjin. And for the past few episodes, we've looked at the Shanghai part of the story. And as you recall, Jews had been part of that scene going back to the 1840s. There were Jewish refugees in other cities in China and in Hong Kong. But the greater story, if I may, took place in these three cities of China. Today, I wanted to mostly focus on the Shanghai Ghetto, officially called the Restricted Sector for Stateless Refugees. In Chinese, this was called the Wu Guoji Nanmin, Xian Ding Di Chu. We saw last episode how the Japanese weren't willing to blindly follow Hitler's final solution program, but they did put this overflow of Jewish refugees in Shanghai in a tight spot. They figured, why go to all this trouble to herd all these stateless refugees into an internment camp like they already did with the British, American, French, and Australians. If they did that, well, they'd be on the hook for providing three squares a day and all the upkeep and overhead that a prison camp requires. By their count, there were 13,511 registered stateless refugees or emigres from Germany and Austria and 1,234 from Poland, 212 from Czechoslovakia, and about 400 or so from Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and Hungary. That's a lot of mouths to feed. Someone along the Japanese chain of command came up with a much more cost-effective and less bothersome method that called for sending all these post-January 1937 arrivals into a small neighborhood in Hongkou. No fences, no barbed wire, no wall, nothing. But it would be patrolled 24-7 with armed guards. This was a much more cost-effective solution than putting them all in internment camps. As far as the matter of food, shelter, and medical care and other services, it was better to leave the Jews to their own devices, to sink or to swim. In an internment camp, that was a Japanese problem. In a ghetto like the kind they created, not their problem. So the word went out through official channels, first on November 15, 1942, through a document known as the Proclamation Concerning Restriction of Residence and Business of Stateless Refugees. Like I said, all those in this stateless group were those who arrived in Shanghai after January 1, 1937. And this especially included that big spike in arrivals that happened all throughout 1939. They all had to move to this sector of the Hongkou district. Not just Jews singled out. All allied nationals, roughly nine to 10,000 of them, had to report to any number of 20 internment camps, including the Longhua internment camp featured in Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun. Now, mind you, over in the beautiful country... We were doing the same thing. As all these people were being rounded up for internment in Shanghai, there were already about 120,000 Japanese Americans, George Takei among them, who had been interned at camps in the U.S. named Manzanar, Bainbridge Island, and others. Same time, 
different continents. The Shanghai Ghetto wasn't that big. Well, when are they ever? For those familiar with this area, it was bordered by Gongping Road to the west, Tongbei Road to the east, Huimin Road to the south, and Zhoujiazui Road to the north. You could walk east to west or north to south. It wouldn't even take you 10 minutes. Less than two square kilometers, about 0.7 square miles, slightly bigger than the Vatican City. Thousands of Jews in the stateless refugee category. Well, they were fortunate to land on their feet when they got to Shanghai thanks to the safety nets put in place by their community. And they didn't have it easy, but they managed to keep on keeping on in their new home. And though I haven't focused on this part that much, many of these stateless Jews built a completely normal life for themselves. Husbands got up and went to work. Kids went to school. There were social clubs, competitive sports, radio programs, and the German language paper, the Shanghai Jewish Chronicle, ran throughout the ordeal, clear through to 1948. Not every Jew in Shanghai you know, was hanging on by their fingernails. But once this order came out, in 1942, telling everyone they had to pick up and move to the designated area, it was like starting all over again. They had managed to dodge Hitler, escape within an inch of their lives, and they survived the passage to Shanghai, created a new nest, brought some normalcy to their lives. And now this. Businesses had to move to the designated area. And if the business couldn't be relocated, tough luck. It was disruptive, to say the least. You arrived after January 1937. Yeah, you were stuck. No one wanted to go there. There was very little wiggle room to get an exemption. Someone ran a racket whereby if you converted to Roman Catholicism, priests would perform some ceremony and you know, you'd be handed a certificate that stated you were a Catholic. And this was one of the few workarounds to having to pick up and relocate to the restricted area. Those certificates were going for about 50 bucks. I don't know how many Jews took them up on the offer. As I've mentioned in past episodes of this series, there have been many living witnesses to this whole period. It's pretty well documented, and the work goes on into our day. Around 15,000 Jews had to move to the ghetto. Plus, there were 9,000 more already living there. Now, you may think 22, 23,000 people crammed into a space less than a square mile. It's tight, but, hey, Mongkok and Kowloon, it's almost 340,000 people per square mile. But, that's all high-rises. Hong Kong in 1942 wasn't Mongkok. It was very tight. Well, all these thousands of Jews confined to this ghetto also had to share it with about 100,000 other Chinese and other miscellaneous refugees who also called the place home. So there's lots of stories, photos, videos, and all kinds of testimony and books written. We who read these narratives in the comfort of 2019 and never had to experience such hardships ourselves, perhaps. Yeah, they're just words on a page, squalid, cramped, foul-smelling, no bathrooms, no plumbing, smallpox, plague, typhoid fever, lice infestations, chilblains in the winter, and the entire horn of plenty of diseases and 
maladies derived from too many human beings living in too small an area with poor sanitation and hygiene. Many were even living in bombed-out buildings, hanging sheets to create some semblance of privacy. That was the Shanghai ghetto, encapsulated in the old proverbial nutshell. People lived their daily lives as if they lived in an internment camp. They sort of ran it themselves. There were rules and regulations from the Japanese authorities, and they had to be followed. I mean, life was already as unpleasant as can be. Falling on the wrong side of the authorities had no upside. They were taken seriously. There was a 6 p.m. curfew, and if you knew what was good for you, you made sure to get back to the designated area in time. As is the case today in our world, some within the ghetto community had it worse than others. Laura Margolis of the JDC, the Joint, as it was known, had been able to perform miracles with the Japanese authority in charge of the stateless refugees while she was in Shanghai. It was still like running a marathon trying to get aid money into Shanghai. Whatever was able to get through provided at least some relief to the most needy. The soup kitchens kept running, but if you didn't have to use them, people fended for themselves. It's not like you were going to get a hearty meal there. And a lot of local Chinese, I dare say most, couldn't have been happier to see the highest and mightiest of the Europeans in Shanghai being cut down a few notches. And Jews going about their day in Hongko, adults and children, often acted as perfect scapegoats for locals to occasionally blow off a little steam every now and then and let them know who was boss now. But there were also stories and accounts given that showed how the two communities, Jews, Chinese, how they sort of found ways to count on each other when called upon for you know whatever the reason was. And when you see the YouTube videos of all these old Jews in their 80s and 90s going back to Hong Kong 60 or more years after they left, and they're reunited with their old Chinese neighbors, and their smiles and fond memories all around, it makes you think they got along. They were all in it together, facing a common antagonizer. The designated area was guarded all day and night. Japanese, Russian, and Sikhs served as the sentries. It wasn't like no one could ever leave the area. Life did go on. It was much more restricted and inconvenient, but people kept hustling. And as I mentioned, businesses kept running and people worked jobs. Kids had to go to school. People still had to get around and leave the area. And to facilitate all this, in August 1943, a system was put in place with color-coded passes valid for a day, a week, or a month, and buttons had to be worn in a visible place that had the Chinese character tong, which meant pass, among many other definitions. And they didn't just hand these things out. I mean, there was a process. And if you needed to apply for one of these passes, depending on your situation, you had to go to the Japanese Bureau of Stateless Refugee Affairs. This office, well, today located at 70 Haimun Road, was headed by a man named Tsutomo Kubota. He was in charge, but he preferred to not get his hands dirty dealing with all the Jewish hoi polloi. He left these matters in the hands of two deputies. And one of these deputies was particularly notorious among many of the former residents of the ghetto. And speaking about their memories of this administrator, 
Kano Goya? They had nothing good to say. He was known as Goya. And in their recollections, that's what they called him. And anyone who ever had to face him never forgot the experience. His appearance, I guess, came off as somewhat comical. He was civilian, not military, so he, he wore a suit and tie, not a uniform. And he kept one of those David Niven pencil-thin mustaches above his lip, slick back hair. He was very, very short. I don't even think five feet tall. And he was one unpleasant SOB. It's amusing to watch the videos of these former Shanghailanders go on about their recollections of their run-ins with Goya. He was quite a character and held a great amount of power over the movements of the ghetto Jews. Nothing came easy with this guy. Depending on his mood, uh, the manner in which you prepared your application, or you know whatever the reason, this guy would rant and scream, sometimes climb on top of his desk, throw papers back in the face of the poor applicant, and in his limited English he'd go on and even humiliate these Jews trying to get a pass from him or get some sort of permission for something. Goya wasn't the Messiah or anything, but he used to call himself the King of the Jews to indicate how much power he wielded over them within the restricted area. The students of the Mir Yeshiva, remember them? They were a group who had to get passes to leave the restricted area every day to go study at Beth Aharon Synagogue, located in the International Settlement. So amidst all this, as a Second World War kept grinding on into 1943 and 1944, life went on in Shanghai for the Jews. There were a myriad of hardships and inconveniences people had to put up with, but life went on. The winter of 1943 was one of the most cold and brutal Shanghai had seen in quite a while. With so many Jewish craftsmen and tradesmen all assembled in one place, many got fed up with living rough and put the skills they learned in the old country to use and installed some of the first plumbing systems many of these Hongko buildings had ever seen. This was another way they brought a few of the conveniences of Europe to many parts of this area. It was a hard life, but they made it livable. There was always little Vienna in good times and bad. Inside the ghetto, an organization was set up by a Nagasaki-born Romanian Jew named Dr. Abraham Cohen. It was called the Shanghai Ashkenazi Collaborating Relief Association, and they were funded by the JDC. It was made up of mostly Russian Jews who were not subject to the ghetto restrictions and ran it in collaboration with Goya and the Japanese authorities. The tales of how everyone sort of settled down into a routine and how everyone adapted to the hardships and the bitter reality, they've been recorded in a number of books and documentaries. I'm going to have a long list of references in the show notes at the website with Amazon links if you're interested to dig a little deeper. When I read the memoirs, what struck me most was the mundaneness in these extraordinary times. By 1944, everyone was starting to get a whiff of Japan's demise. There were all kinds of palpable signs that they too were struggling. Certain goods and foodstuffs that before were merely hard to get now became impossible to procure. After enduring the bitter 
Shanghai winter of 1943-44, the people were ragged. And then in mid-August 1944, American B-29s flying out of Chongqing started doing their thing and carrying out bombing runs all over the outskirts of Shanghai. Surely, everyone who saw Spielberg's Empire of the Sun remembers the airport scene when Jim was up on the roof when the Yanks flying P-51 Mustangs bombed the airstrip at Longhua internment camp. This was that time. And the two atomic bombs were still a year away. How's that for persistence? The Japanese weren't giving up. And so... Everyone in Shanghai suffered with them, Jewish refugees included. Even JDC funds in 1943 couldn't get through and were frozen until early 1944 after Laura Margolis had returned to the States and, you know, banged some heads. During the Shanghai ghetto period in particular, because it spanned the worst years of the war, people just went into survival mode. You know, there's some basic things we all need, and that was the focus for most, especially those who didn't have any safety nets underneath them. Eat, have a roof over your head, pay for school fees. Just the basics. 1943, 1944, and into the final year of 1945. As we all know, the end did in fact come one day. May 1945, VE Day, goodbye Hitler, then the two atom bombs, August 6th and 9th, August 15th, Emperor Hirohito, who, I'll have you know, I share a birthday with, made his radio debut and surrendered on behalf of his nation. Thirteen years of Japanese occupation of China and three and a half years of occupation in Shanghai finally came to an end. On August 26, 1945, Chiang Kai-shek's troops, in what was surely one of his finest hours as a military and political leader, entered the city. The great American hero from the state of Louisiana, General Claire Chenault, also marched with Jiang on that day, leading the 14th Air Force. Then, the following week, September 2, 1945, the Japanese instrument of surrender was signed aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. In Everyone who had been enduring the unendurable and suffering the insufferable during the Japanese occupation, it was time for them to move on to the next chapter in their lives. For China, there would be four more years of war, of uncertainty, and bloodshed. But as the summer of 1945 started to turn into autumn, it was also time for these Jewish refugees of China to figure out their next move. Word eventually spread far and wide about what had happened to European Jewry in the Holocaust. Those who had made it to Shanghai to wait out the clock were thankful to be alive, but most knew the loved ones and relatives left behind probably didn't fare too well. So, where to go? You know, without the encumbrances of a foreign occupier to limit the free flow of information or movement, it was a lot easier now to get things done. UNRWA the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Agency. They blew into town and began interviewing all those refugees who survived the war years. And with the assistance of the good old JDC, the Joint, they began to place them in whatever countries would take them. Hong Kong became one of the bigger transit centers for these Jewish refugees. In fact, Lord Lawrence Kadori, son of the Kadori patriarch Sir Eli Kadori, He put everyone up in the Peninsula Hotel while they waited for resettlement and 
other nations. Sir Eli Kadori, by the way, a silent hero from this time, he passed away in a Japanese internment camp in 1944. His grave is still in Shanghai. My man, Dan Stein, visited it recently and sent me a souvenir photo. I'm going to go pay my respects next Shanghai visit. With the Holocaust now common knowledge in 1945, many nations were a little less stingy with their immigration quotas. So amidst the hostilities of the Chinese Civil War, Jews started leaving China for new destinations all over the world, but mostly to the usual suspects, the USA, Canada, UK, Australia, and various Latin American nations. Some went back to Europe, the Holocaust was over, but the anti-Semitism remained. In China, Jews and a whole bunch of other groups of people who called that place their home all these years started leaving en masse. Harbin, where a most thriving Jewish community once existed, had mostly emptied out once World War II started. And the Soviets occupied Harbin from 1945 to 1947, and those remaining Harbin Jews... They dispersed and went out into the world, and many who stayed behind ended up in Stalin's Gulag Archipelago. The largest Jewish cemetery in the Far East, still in Harbin, over 700 gravestones. You can go see them, still there, but not in the original location. There were four synagogues in Harbin up until 1950. It wasn't what it used to be, but there were still as many as 3,500 Jews still living in Harbin after the establishment of the People's Republic. By 1953, though, most of them were gone and had all been settled in Israel after the nation was established May 14, 1948. Yeah, a lot ended up in Israel. The whole Mir Yeshiva, too. Kit and Caboodle, they too went to Israel, and as I said, they're still there. The Israeli consul, Moshe Yuval, came to Shanghai in 1948 and issued about... 7,000 visas to those Jewish refugees who hadn't yet left China and were game for emigrating to the Promised Land. Moshe Yuval was also a former Israeli consul to New York City and was Israel's first diplomatic representative to China. By the end of 1959, there were maybe a couple hundred Jews left in China from this original group who were still on the dole accepting relief from the JDC. By the 1980s, they had all left or succumbed to old age. The last of the Mohicans, still on the JDC dole, left China in 1985. And to show that life always finds a way, only between 1939 and 1947, about 500 or so Jews were born in Shanghai. And all these Shanghai landers today, they're all over the world. You know, there was this scene in a video or documentary, I forgot which. I saw it, but then I couldn't find it again when I looked for it. They were interviewing this old gran. I'd say she was in her late 80s. And they filmed her in a taxi on a trip back to Shanghai with her daughter, a granddaughter, I forgot. And she was just a young girl when her life got uprooted and she fled Europe with her parents to Shanghai. Well, aside from expressing her eternal thanks to the Chinese people who accepted her family during these trying times. She said being able to find refuge in Shanghai had not only saved her life, but that of her four kids she later had, 
all the grandchildren that followed, and the great-grandchildren she enjoys now, and all the generations that will follow her till the end of time. So the moral of the story, well, one life isn't just one life. You know, it's not like all the Shanghai locals love the Jews and cherish their presence in their city. I'm sure there was plenty of mutual grumbling and contempt on both sides. But from all the stories handed down, these two groups with so many unnoticeable similarities, they were all in this together and depended on each other throughout the ordeal. A lot of solid bonds were created. And the stories of incidents where the Chinese turned on the Jews and persecuted them, I mean, you'd have to look hard. I couldn't find any. And so, that's why when you roll through the videos on YouTube and elsewhere, you'll see many of those Jews, from the bottom of their heart, they were thankful to the Chinese people and the Chinese nation for giving them this second chance in life. Whatever the historical circumstances were that kept the door open in China, the main problem for Jews trying to escape Europe was that all the doors were closed everywhere else, and China turned out to be not a bad place of refuge. These European Jewish refugees may have left their country behind, but the culture came with them. They brought it to China, got it cranking, and kept going. And I'm sure they picked up a few good tips from their Chinese neighbors along the way. And today, in these great destinations in China, Shanghai, Harbin, Tianjin, former Jewish residents have returned to visit with their children and grandchildren, and once again walked in their footsteps from the 1930s and 40s. And as I mentioned, many Chinese residents who had been living in these buildings in these areas for generations were happy to see their old friends who also survived those terrible times. The story of the Jewish refugees in China is just one of countless numbers of tragic and triumphant stories that came out of World War II. I hope this little six-part series was able to enlighten you on this particular story. I hope you liked it. So I think I'm going to close up shop here, and like I do with all these topics, I'll leave it up to you if you're interested to read up more on the subject. Again, I have a bunch of halfway decent references in the show notes. I recommend one in particular if you'd like a nice, easy read about the history of these times. My Shanghai buddy, Dan Stein, gave me his personal copy. It's called Stateless in Shanghai by Lillianne Willens, and it's published by none other than the outfit I have mentioned many times in this program, Earnshaw Books, the talented and respected Graham Earnshaw, proprietor of that august establishment. Lillianne Willens has been one of the leading voices that has documented this history. She gives speeches all over the place about this history. And Dan Stein actually met Mrs. Willens recently at one of her talks and sent me a photo with her. She was actually born in the French concession in Shanghai and remembers these times well. She's still going strong in her 90s. Stateless in Shanghai, Earnshaw Books. Okay, onwards and upwards, the next great thing here at the China History Podcast. Next topic is already picked out, thanks to... Everyone who listened to the past six episodes and for all the comments you've sent me, always appreciated. So, until the next time, this here is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the City of Angels, Los Angeles, California. Please think about joining me in a couple weeks. I assure you a splendid time is guaranteed for all here at the China History Podcast. Take care, everyone.